Thank you so much. Thank you all for being out here uh, this lovely evening. And before we begin, I would like to take a moment to acknowledge our hosts, particularly the fine work of Karen and Charlie, for opening up this new page in comics uh, at the university. And hopefully this is the first of many events uh, to come. So let's have a round for them for uh, this fine evening. I'm Charles Brownstein. You can see some of the work of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund on the screen. And as uh, you came in, you might have seen that we have some magazines there for you, showing what the fund's most recent work is. Uh, Diana is uh, showing it off for you. Um, If you didn't grab one, please feel free to take one on your way out. Uh, We are located here in Portland, just downtown, and working to be a uh, significant contributor to the community and defending the rights of all of us in this outstanding medium. As we look at the question of what comics are today, we are privileged to have a panel of creators that come from a broad spectrum within the field. Uh, I'd like to start by beginning uh, by by introducing M.K. Reed. M.K., seated at the end, is the author of several significant books for uh, young adult readers, most recently um, working on uh, science-oriented comics for First Second. Uh, My personal favorite is on the screen here, Americus with Jonathan Hill, which is the story of a book ban that dives deep into the personal value of intellectual freedom uh, in in a community. Uh, It's a terrific piece of work, and we're thrilled to have her joining us uh, this evening. Seated beside MK, we have Mark Russell, who is most recently at work on the Flintstones for DC Comics, and he has managed to make this the most subversive comic book (laughs) happening in the country right now. Uh, He is also the co-author with Shannon Wheeler of uh, God is Disappointed in You. And Apocrypha Now, uh, an example of which you see on the screen. Welcome to Mark. Diana Schutz is a legendary editor of the comic book field who has worked with every major contributor to the field in the English language uh, over the last uh, 30-plus years. Uh, On the screen, you see one of her finer collaborations with uh, Frank Miller in uh, 300. But uh, if you want to know the real story of how comics works and, more importantly, what the people behind the scenes are like, take Diana out for for a glass of wine afterwards. (laughs) And uh, last but not least, we're proud to uh, also have Shannon Wheeler, the, uh, the New Yorker cartoonist and acclaimed creator of Too Much Coffee Man, co-creator with Mark Russell of the God is Disappointed in You books and soon-to-be author of uh, Things My President Says, uh, (laughs) since we have a prohibition on certain profanity in this room, uh, which are the illustrated tweets of Donald Trump. So take a look for that coming this summer. So uh, welcome to all of us, uh, to, to all of our panelists. Thank you. Now, the first question is one that actually we on the panel have for you. And so I would like to see your hands and your reflections on what is it that you think of as comics? What do comics mean to you? What are they? 
Charlie, I'll start with you. What, 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 what's your association? You're a, you're a recent convert. So what, what, what do you associate with comics? Well, first thing I think of, of with comics is those uh, things in the newspaper that have been in the newspaper for 100 years, uh, the comics section. And, uh, and after that, I think of uh, Marvel and DC. Uh, the, you know, in, in DC, you know, Batman and Superman and then the, the great Marvel heroes like you know, Thor and Spider-Man. And somebody else in the crowd. All right. What are comics to you? Uh, well, well, I grew up on Calvin and Hobbes. So, you know, just having, having art that's, that's uh, not only just lighthearted, but also can teach you something kind of, you know, kind of being in a fun, non way. And how many here would, would tend to agree with that? How many's first exposure to comics was uh, in the newspapers? And how many beyond that first exposure went on to comic books. And how many beyond that first exposure went on to graphic novels? And how many in this room started reading comic books uh, as a child? And how many started reading comics as an adult? And how many are actively reading comics right now? <laughs> So I see we have so many people that are so lucky that you're not reading comics right now because there's so much to discover. <laughs> and so I would like to speak to our panelists about some of these different categories. So let's start with the comic strip. We have a Charles Schultz cartoon, Peanuts, probably the most iconic uh, of the American strips. And Diana, what would you call the qualities of a comic strip, both in terms of storytelling and in terms of how it uses the medium? Um, all right, well, actually, this slide is one that I sent to Charles, and I, I use it in my own courses. I teach comics history at Portland State uh, and a comics, art, and literature course at Portland Community College. And the thing about this particular strip, and strips in general, is they're restricted. They, you know, comics is all about space, the final frontier. Uh, and, and the newspaper strip is restricted to three or four panels, and as they grow smaller and smaller and smaller in the newspaper, to this tiny little bit of space. So the cartoonist has to do something, he has to evoke, he or she has to evoke a reaction in a very small amount of space. In this particular case, we have in four panels, we have the classic narrative arc, we've got the setup, the conflict, he's sleeping on my piano, the climax, and the resolution. And what's brilliant about this particular strip and Charles Schultz in general is that he took the limitations of the medium of comics, that is, they're silent and they're static. Uh, and he took, so you have to, in order to express movement, you have to do it visually because comics don't move. In order to express sound, you have to do it visually because you can't, comics are silent. And he took those limitations and made a joke out of it, which to me is, you know, that's brilliant. With 
is such a small number of lines to evoke such a major reaction. That's sort of and and comic strips are you know they're like this concise concentrated form of comics um, and so yeah so I guess that's that's what the strip does for me it 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 packs it all into a tiny tiny little space it's probably the hardest type of comics to do I would think but you could probably speak better Well, and you can see, you know, in the other examples that you provided, you know, how the strip cartoonist plays with these limitations. We have an Ernie Bushmiller Nancy strip. Anything can happen in a comic strip, you know, where he's playing with the grammar by virtue of how the figures move in space. But the other strip that you provided us, Diana, this Calvin and Hobbes daily strip, um, describes one of the central conflicts, I think, of uh, the careers of people like Diana and myself and Shannon, um, you know, where when we came into working in comics professionally, the comic strip was this low art. It was regarded as this low value speech. And this is something that is particularly dogged probably the second most common form of uh, comics, which is the comic book. And this has uh, evolved dramatically over the last century. Uh, you see an early issue of Batman, um, you know, illustrating the earliest adventures of this iconic uh, comic book character. And something that, you know, probably more of you are familiar with, the more contemporary uh, X-Men comics. But beyond the superheroes, there is this entire realm of expression in comic books that moves into more personal stories, uh, the likes of which you see in comics like uh, Eight Ball by Daniel Klaus, uh, and a more contemporary example, Saga by Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples, uses the science fiction genre to describe what it is to be a family. But what we're seeing here is, okay, so comic books can encapsulate anything, but what goes into making them? And Mark, you're making a significant uh, name for yourself, um, you know, in, in the work that you're doing over at DC Comics. I'm wondering if you can describe for the audience the process of comic books and some of the limitations and the grammar that goes into it. Sure, but um, the biggest limitation and the biggest sort of learning curve I've had working, uh, especially for a big two publisher, is that your creativity is never really your own. It's always a collaboration with uh, two or more people. And you have to be willing to sort of let go, let God. You know, you, you got to be willing to uh, accept the, that there's only so much you can do as a writer and be able to turn over to the artists and the, the editors and, and trust that they're not going to debauch your vision. But... Um, <laughs> And, uh, and I think it also helps, uh, at least in my experience, because my experience is very limited, um, they, they, if you don't know what you're doing, it's, I think it's better to come in sort of not knowing what the, the bad habits are in comics, not knowing what everyone else has done before, uh, so that you seem fresh and original just by reason of your own ignorance. Ed, does that square with your experience, Diana, of editing comic books? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. Um, look, the the writer is is sorry. <laughs> the, the writer is really at the heart of things. I mean, wh whoever's creating the story, 
is is where it all starts. Um, and you know, traditional comic books tend to be made on a on a as a group process. That that's the diplomatic term. Assembly line is really more is the proper description. So we have a writer, a penciler, an inker, someone who does the lettering. These days that's kind of a typist, sorry, but and then a colorist. Um, so it's it's this fragmentation of a job that used to be done entirely by one person. In large part, that's because publishers want to make more money more quickly now. Uh, so they parcel out all the different jobs. And, and as a result of that, now you know we, we've grown up into an industry that has comic book writers, comic book pencilers, and so on. Um, it's, so it's this fragmented process which is <coughs> supposedly held together by the publisher and the publisher's representative, who is the editor, who's caught between a rock and a hard place because not only is the editor the publisher's representative, but if he or she has half a brain, they are also the creator's representative. So they're constantly, there's the business demand and the creative demand. And that person has to juggle both and kind of tie it all together. And Mark, you were saying <coughs> at dinner that you know there are things that when you're writing stuff that seem to just go through as if no one has read it, and balloons are you know badly. <laughs> you don't want to have a balloon that covers up somebody's face, for instance. I mean, that's you know somebody needs to be. Not asleep at the wheel for right. that it's sort of It's a work stuff. of continual frustration. <laughs> and yet your Flintstones is great. So oh, thank you. somehow it's... Yeah, no, it's it, it, like most things in my life, you just chip away at all the things that are wrong until it seems right. <laughs> and I think that's really what the process is when you're collaborating. It's like you, you each have you know your own visions, your own ideas of what should be in there, and they, they sort of collide or they don't completely mesh. But then you just sort of chip away at it until it, it does it. I, for me, writing, that's the way I write, too. I write, I don't write so much as I rewrite. I, um, my initial stories are usually pretty bad. And, but, it, but then I, like, like a sculptor, I just sort of chip at the way the parts that don't look like um, David. And eventually I, I end up with, with, not to compare myself to Michelangelo, but I end up with something that resembles David. And... Beyond the comic book, and speaking of chipping away, you know, over time, the revelation of the graphic novel uh, in the 1970s, um, you know, took all of the formal dynamics that we've been discussing so far and wrote it very large. Uh, and here on the screen, you see two examples of Diana. Uh, had edited, um, including one by Will Eisner, Last Day in Vietnam. Will Eisner uh, championed the graphic novel form, and he envisioned a world where comics would move beyond what he called the cycle of pursuit and vengeance that he saw in superhero comics, and that one day we would have a creator like M.K. Reed that would not 
be bound to making her living uh, telling those stories about mutants beating the hell out of each other, to quote Will Eisner. Uh, and so, you know, MK, I'd like you to speak to the process of somebody that is coming into comics with that vast canvas and not necessarily, you know, tied to the editorial processes we've been discussing so far. Um, well, it, it kind of depends on which thing I'm doing because I've done a number of different projects um, and I've been doing a, a serial now that, that kind of, it's wizards but it, instead of mutants, but it's still, there's, there's some punching. Um, and they are punching giant robots, so it's uh, kind of relevant. But, um, you know, I didn't, I, I grew up reading newspaper strips and Archie, and then as a teenager, I wasn't that into X-Men or, like, most things that were happening in the 90s. Um, and then uh, it, when I went to college, I discovered this whole library that never existed in uh, any of the public libraries back then of graphic novels. And um, I want to say Craig Thompson's Chunky Rice was like a really transformative book for me when I was a college freshman because it was just doing something so different from everything else I had seen. Um, so I kind of grew up a little bit reading comics, but mostly reading like very thick and um, impressive sounding books um, for a high schooler. And I thought I was gonna be a, like a prose writer. Um, and then I found myself drawing very bad-looking comics, but becoming familiar with the, the language of working on them. Um, and just, I happened to come into it at this time when things were not 24-page issue every month, or, you know, like an eight-issue miniseries of 200 pages. Um, so I just kind of did a couple pages here and there, or one-page experiments, and um, eventually figured out how to do like a 150 page book and kept going from there um no no you have to unpack a statement like that <laughs> i figured out how to make a 150 page book now for most of us you know 150 pages sounds like a daunting thing we'll never do in our lifetime so i'm not going to let you get away with that what does that mean um i i did uh mini comics and they kept getting longer and then i did four that kind of related to each other that were something like I don't know, I think they were like 30 pages or so. Some of them were a little bit longer. Um, and then it, I, I had like a big thing that had width to it that um, I had to figure out how to put a spine on it <laughs> onto shelves. Um, so it's... Uh, yeah, so, so getting to an, a part of my career where I'm now writing about things punching things is very weird and along the way I've written about um, like teen girls who hang out after school and fight um, and romance and uh, the history of paleontology and uh, how the globe is going to collapse with weather. It's terrible. Um, <laughs> 
And, and speaking of collapsing, um, you know, when I was speaking to Shannon Wheeler before this program, he yelled at me because um, he said, you know, you've neglected, you know, the most important kind of comics. And so I want you to yell at me in public about what I've neglected here, Shannon. The, the, there's narration, there's a narrative in a single panel comic. And I think that each panel has a... Uh, <laughs> it's creating a good single panel comic, creates a story that precedes the image and something in your head that's following the image. And there's dialogue and there's... It's a narrative. It's a climax and resolution, as, the, as Diana put it. Um, what, how did it start the... Set up, conflict, climax, resolution. I think you can see that a little bit. And um, although you've comments. you've distilled that over a career that began in college newspapers and then went into you know self-publishing, what were the storytelling lessons of reduction that inform your your creative work? I, I met a cartoonist from the New Yorker and. I said, how do I get in the New Yorker? And I hadn't... <laughs> and he said, he's like, that oh... Was the creative? <laughs> this is where it started. I'm getting there. This is the setup. And he said, he said oh, send me, send me some of your stuff, and I'll... You know, and then he said, okay, you want to do single-panel comics? And then he just said, well, yeah, these aren't very funny. Um, but I can bring... You know, I can show, if you want me to, I can send them up. And I was like, uh, yeah, I, I guess... Or if you want to send them to me, I'll critique them, and you can, you know, I'm happy to work with you on this. And, and he was really harsh, where he would just say, "I guess you've never studied humor, or this is just not funny, or you really need to go like work this one differently." Or it was just, and you know, put me through all these changes of, you know, screw you, I've read your stuff, it's not that good, you know, like I, you know, I had all the internal stuff that I had to let go of, and kind of let him tear me down and, and redefine and rebuild how I was looking at comics and how I was looking at single-panel comics. And that's when I started thinking about a single-panel as narrative. And, and it, was, it was interesting. It was a neat way to be torn down, to allow yourself that trust of being, having your, your ego torn down and then trying to rebuild up, seeing what's left, which is nothing, and then, you know, rebuilding from there. So that was... So I, I have a question for you because the first work of yours that I read was Too Much Coffee Man, and that's that's long form comics, um, and they're funny, but they're also depressing and beautifully drawn, um, and to go from sort of you know uh, whatever it was twenty four page yeah. issue of a comic and then however many issues of that comic and to kind of compress all of that into single panels. I mean, what aside from just wanting to be in the New Yorker, what else kind of fuels that? How do you do that? <laughs> it's easy. Um, it's like what Mark said, you have an idea and then that's your kernel and then when you're doing a 24-page comic, you can explore that idea from all these different angles. You, you build the setup, and you have your you have your payoff on you know page eight or whatever, little gags here and there. And when you're working a single-panel comic, you just are taking out every 
adjective and adverb and simplifying it down and really saying, okay, what is this idea? And in best case scenario, it comes to you as a flash where you are just playing with these images <laughs> of like Moses getting the commandments and then you're just thinking, okay, this is kind of a contract with God is, is these Ten Commandments. And I thought, well, contracts, yeah, there's going to be some fine print. Okay, where's the fine print? It's going to be the pebbles that are trailing behind him. And that's just sort of your logical train of thought. And if you're doing that as a... <laughs> illogical. I, maybe logical isn't the right word. But it's... Mark, I've watched him work on things and having an idea that drives it, I think, is a really strong... To me, that's where it's coming from, is the concept first. And then it's just putting that you're putting in a bowl, and whatever bowl, the shape of the bowl, that's where your idea fits. Is that true for you, MK and Mark? Yeah, I am... Um, the, the, the bowl changes as I, as I work on it for me. I, I, it, what I end up with is usually a lot different than what I started out with. I mean, yeah, I have a very sort of central concept. I don't really try to force it to stay too much within that. I, um, they asked me to send solicitations uh, for the comics I'm writing, usually three months in advance. What's a solicitation? A solicitation is like a, like, a, like a short two or three sentence description of what the comic is going to be about, and they send it to the... You have to write your I don't have to. I just, I just do it because they asked me to, and I don't know any better. But they're always wrong. So, 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 just just to translate this into layman speak, this is as if Michael Bay had to write the TV guide listing for the Transformers. Not to compare you to Michael Bay. I'm sorry, but it was the first name that came to mind. But, but it doesn't matter who writes them. It's an act of futility because usually. By that time, what I've written has radically changed from what I told them I was going to write. Uh, so they're very misleading because at some point um, you, you turn the, work, the, the story you're writing over to itself. And the things that you're, you're not forcing them to like conform to your will, you're allowing the things to happen within the story that are organic or that need to happen to serve the central idea. So I think that, that flexibility is, is ultimately... A responsibility if you're really truly serving the idea that you're trying to convey. And MK? <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, well, this, so this past week I've been working on a, an issue of my wizard book, um, and I, I work with another writer on it too, um, and I end up doing the dialogue after he kind of breaks down all the pages, and uh, we started out writing an outline for the issue a couple months ago that fits into the whole arc, and then um, he goes through and, and gets every panel down and everything, and then I kind of like have torn out whole parts and kind of just go like, you're not getting two double page spreads for fancy things and <laughs> words and it needs to be a scene about these two characters because we never resolved that three issues ago. Um, so so plans change and uh, projects change too. Mm -hmm. Now I'd like to get to you know the real meat of this panel which is you know why aren't comics funny and why are comics funny and the thing about comics that isn't readily apparent when you're reading them is how laborious a medium it is. And, and Diana discussed this somewhat in the limitations in the Schultz strip. You know, we're a silent medium, you know, and, and um, 
we are about space and we are about being concise. It isn't simply telling a joke. It isn't simply drawing a funny image. It is all of those things plus timing plus understanding the reader. And so to a certain degree, making a comic funny is much, much more difficult than telling a good joke in a bar. And so I would like to, you know, ask the panelists, many of whom, you know, all of whom use humor uh, to great effect in your work. How do you make it translate? Because, you know, most of us, we tell a joke in a crowded room and and nobody laughs at us and that's humiliating. It's got to be far worse on the page. How does it work? Mark? (laughs) I... I usually just start with the, the darkest, most depressing thing I can think of and, and try to think, well, what, what makes it not so bad? Or, or um, what's, the, what's the darkest thing I suspect is true about the world, and how can I say it as quickly as possible? And it usually turns out to be funny. I find that, that as a rule, it, the more, it, more you condense things, the funnier they get. And so be concise. Uh, George Saunders has a brilliant quote. He said that... Um, Humor is the truth faster than you expected it. And so that's what I try to do is like, what, what do I really think is like disturbing and true and real about the world? And how do I express it in such a way that people are going to feel like a Band-Aid's been pulled off them when they read it? And uh, yeah, so I, I think that's, that's pretty much, I, I like to envision a, like a meteor striking the earth and thinking that my words are like the meteor and I want it to create as big a crater as possible with using the smallest rock I can make. Um, you know, I, I, I just want to jump in here for a minute because I, I have a question for you, Mark, once I'm done with this little blah, blah. Uh, one of the reasons, to my mind, that comics are less funny than they could be is the comic book industry is sort of dichotomous. There's the mainstream mainstream month, uh, weekly pamphlet industry, and then there's the graphic novel industry. And the mainstream monthly pamphlet industry is owned by corporations. Disney, God Corp, owns Marvel. Um, and Warner and whoever Warner is currently affiliated with owns DC. DC. And they have many, many lawyers to prevent you from doing anything remotely funny. So how do you get away with being funny with the Flintstones? Because Mark doesn't own the Flintstones. Hanna-Barbera owns the Flintstones. They license that to Warner, who licenses it to DC, who allows Mark to write this comic. And the fact that he can get away with being funny at all is mind-blowing. In in, in the issue I read last night, Fred Flintstone said to Barney, we committed a genocide. (laughs) How do you do that? Um, I think I mostly get away with it because nobody's really watching. It's like it's like I'm on the USA Network at three o'clock in the morning, so uh, I get a little more latitude. I I think my niche at DC has been I'm not the guy you hand the keys to the Lamborghini to. Um, I'm the guy you hand the keys to the broken down Volkswagen bus to. Uh, so Flintstones were just sort of like vitamin pills when I took them over. They they weren't really a functioning 
living, breathing franchise. Uh, I also did an adaptation of a, of a comic from the 70s called Prez, which was, for all intents and purposes, dead. And I, so they don't really care. They don't care if I smash it into a wall or if I, uh, if I um, run over three children. Um, it's not like I'm writing Superman or Batman where there's a thousand rules you have to abide by when you're, when you're writing it. So it's a lot easier to be funny. Uh, it's a lot easier to take chances. And um, I think that's, that's the key to, to humor, really, to be writing a funny comic, because you have to write like nobody's reading. Now, Shannon, you know, we're, we're all sitting around talking about words. Mm-hmm. Now, the average comic book artist you know, will spend at least a day creating the page of the comic that you read in charitably under a minute. And that's it's, so you're supposed to read it that quickly. That's the way the pace flows. And so we're sitting around talking about words and our theory of jokes. And you're the guy that actually needs to put it down on the page and spend a day of your life taking that script and making it work for the audience to read in 10 seconds. So is what we said, does that all ring true to you? Or is there something else that we're not describing that you have to put into action when you're making the joke work on the page from a script? Well, yeah, but I mean, keep in mind that my drawings are pretty crappy, so <laughs> I can bang out, you know, 20 or 30 of these in an hour or two. And but you're evading the question. <laughs> so, um, is there something not being taken into account? There is, when you're drawing, yeah, I mean, like one thing, one bit of advice that I was given is um, if you want to make a funny gag, you want to put the funniest word last. <coughs> Which it makes no sense. I mean, it's a it's a silly thing. Um, you want? I mean, for me, like in the drawings, I want there to be pathos, and I want there to be a feeling of like this is a real person, and I want, and that's what, like Mark taking the Flintstones or something. When it is funny, it feels real, and that's that's to me when comics are working really well is when it does have that resonance, and it's something that you has really come from inside of you. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah, and that's something that's really hard to describe or to quantify and, and put, put down to paper. And you know when it's working and you know when it's not, too. You know when you're faking it. Mm-hmm. And MK and Mark, um, you know, as you're writing for artists, what is the empathetic process that you put yourself through in determining what instructions you're giving them as you're developing your script? It depends on the artist. Um, I usually know who I'm working with ahead of time, um, and I'll, you know, ask them sometimes how much information they want. Um, but I tend to just kind of describe what needs to be there, um, and the the gist of the construct that needs to be going on around the characters, uh, and then give them free reign for everything else um, and then just try and kind of get the, the character motivation and, and emotional thoughts in there as well so they can let them walk around and cry when they need to. Do you ever, like, as a writer, like write out a little storyboard for the artist? Um, I have... But they almost always come up with something better, so then I just started letting them do that, and it seems to be working out fine. If it's something super technical and I'm like really set on, I might do it, but it's never really been the case that they're not 
capable of doing the spatial reasoning? Um, I'm relatively new to comics. I've only I've only been in it for a couple of years, and when I started, uh, like I said, I didn't really know what I was doing. So I I think I, I was a really horrible artist or writer to work with as an art for an artist because I would you know cram a page with seven panels, and they'd all you know there'd be like three crowd scenes and doing these things that were driving artists crazy. It'd take them a lot of time, not realizing that what I was doing. I figured one drawing just takes as much time as the other. So now that I, I know a little better, I um, I like to imagine that I'm sort of in the uh, the, the Milgram conformity experiments, where there's, there's a man in a white lab coat saying, oh, no, go ahead, They're, they'll be fine, and asking me to shock the hell out of the guy in the next room. And I have to sort of inter- you know empathize, not really knowing what they're going through, but, but sort of trying to guess how much of a shock they can take. So, I mean, <laughs> which is difficult, because I write comics that, that are largely about the dangers of mob mentality and that sometimes require sort of big, epic scenes. And so, uh, but, I, but I try to limit myself on those that I know that are, that are um, shocking the artist past the red line and, and just administer, you know, nice low shocks as much as possible. <laughs> And now, speaking of epic scenes, we have uh, an, an epic uh, crowd here this evening, and I would like to not monopolize our conversation and invite any questions or comments from the audience. Yes? Why aren't comics funny anymore? Well, that, I think anymore is kind of the key, key word there, because, I mean, there used to be, I mean, used to be um, there were lots of funny comics. You don't see them as much anymore. And I, I think, one, it's because it's hard to be funny, so it doesn't lend itself to the, the conveyor belt process uh, that was described earlier. And I think also, um, you know, uh, comedy is uh, tragedy plus distance. Uh, as um, Mel Brooks once said, uh, uh, tragedy is when I cut my finger, comedy is when you fall into a sewer and die. But I think we all sort of feel like we're in the sewer right now, so it's hard to be funny about that. So the tragedy is too close to us, I think, at this point, so it's hard for people. But I think in a way, when that, that's kind of the time when you need comedy the most, because it's aspirational at that point. It's a way of saying we are bigger than the crisis that confronts us. Because you can that's the only it. way I'm dealing with it, though. Like, I'm reading, now I'm slogging through 30,000 plus of every day more of Trump's tweets trying to put together this book and then, so every day I'm, I'll pick one or two that he's done that day like um, and then I'll go back and read through, you know, 2016 and it's like, but it's, it's processing for me and it's um, yeah, I feel like I'm dealing with it better than a lot of my liberal friends that are crying every night in the bar. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I'm kind of into this. Um, I'd also like to suggest a, a formal reason as to uh, there are a lot of historical reasons as to why comics are less funny than they started out as being um, but in terms of comic books or long form comics uh, the way they're structured the reader really has a lot of impact on how they're read. Uh, in other words, you know, a good joke requires timing 
the, the comic who tells the joke, who pauses just for a second before delivering the punchline and gets you laughing. The comic who's telling that joke controls the timing entirely. With comics and with long-form comics, it really doesn't work that way. The reader has a certain amount of control as well. And this is part of the job of the comics artist, is to try to get the reader to read the way he or she wants them to read the book in the time, you know, to zip through this sequence and slow down with that sequence. And it's really, really hard, I think, to <coughs> control the timing enough so that the reader kind of is in sync to land on the joke when you want them to land on the joke. So I think there are actual formal space reasons, again, of space um, that, that tend to weigh against how easily comic books can be funny. And so when there are comic books that are funny, there's something really special going on there. On the other hand, my ex-husband says I am entirely humorless, so perhaps... MK? <laughs> um, I, think, I think there's also uh, been sort of that stigma that the, the, the comics are for kids. It's in the headline of every article that is so surprised that a book could be serious that there was uh, kind of like a pendulum shift for a while where like we're in the times now we're getting reviewed in proper newspapers and things like that and I, I worked in uh, a comic book store 10 years ago in New York City uh, right off Union Square where there's the farmer's market and everything and every week we'd have people coming in and they'd want that book they read about in the times it's a graphic novel and if you called it a comic book they would correct you despite you being the person who worked in the comic book store um, and uh, it's kind of finally sort of gone back the other way where people are like it's kind of a dumb term and we can just call it all comics again there, there was an adolescent sensibility yes. I'm not a kid yes. yeah absolutely serious. yeah are other questions in the audience or comments in the audience? Yes. How old are your kids? My audience is getting older every day because I write for myself. <laughs> I don't. Know, I don't have a good sense of audience. I really don't. But you're you're hitting an audience, Mark. I mean, like that's your. Yeah, and I think that's a pretty accurate observation. I think that the the, the humor and it's helped me because I'm able I'm able to write something that's funny for somebody who's like in college or or, or older because I know it's not like an eight year old 
flipping through my uh, Flintstones comic and then reading about genocide. Um, you know, I, I uh, one time I went, it was a, in a store and I saw um, a bunch of Star Wars action figures. I thought, oh, that's cute. I remember those from when I was a kid. Everyone looked, flipping through the Star Wars action figures was a middle-aged man. And it was the most depressing thing I ever saw. <laughs> And I sort of worry about that happening to comics. I think that it, we always need to make sure that we're doing something to serve new generations coming through and something needs to be written. But I think your observation is pretty on the money and that the, the audience is not primarily, you know, 6 to 12-year-olds anymore. It's, it's college, adult, young adult, and, and above. But MK, a lot of your audiences, so how do you deal with that problem? Um, I don't... No, I just kind of put stuff out, and and people who are following my stuff. Kind well, of let, let's put it another way. How do you make science comics not taste like vegetables? Um, I was, I mean, I'm not a scientist. <laughs> um, they, the first second brought me in, and and they were like, we want to do educational comic books, but we don't want them to be terrible like educational comic books. Um. So they 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 really stressed making them entertaining and humorous, and I mean they I'd done the other books for them, so they knew I could bring jokes to it. And uh, I don't know if they ended up getting exactly the book they thought they were gonna get, but um, I I tried to make it funny, and I I think it stuck. And um, the other ones that I've done have been pretty humorous for them too um it's so weird because the like the the industry is so different now than it was 10 years ago that there there's more breadth for younger readers and for female readers and i mean i remember when i was working and buffy season eight was coming out in issues and like that one wednesday there would be a lot more women in the store than any other given day in the month. Like, they were there to get Buffy, not anything else, but that's okay. They were just getting in and getting out, and it was kind of a weird store that smelled funny. So, <laughs> they did their best. Yeah, I, I'd like to suggest that there are, in fact, a lot more women and girls reading comics now, certainly than when I was growing up, and I'm the oldest person on this panel, so when I was growing up, I was the only little girl I knew who was reading superhero comics. Um, and now my nieces are the ones who are recommending graphic no and they're 10 and 12, and they're recommending graphic novels for me to read. Uh, lots and lots. The, the, the girl readership, specifically the young girl readership, has grown tremendously. Um, in large part, I think, because there's so much variety being offered now uh, that was not being offered even 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, you know? Yeah, um, so I think... Raina Telgemeier's books have uh, been out for about, I want to say Smile's been out for like maybe seven years now. And it's been on the New York Times bestseller yeah, list for much. that long. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the really cool thing to think about is that if you were 10 when Smile first came out and it, you got it out then, you're 17 now and you're if you're really into comics, you have 
so much cool stuff to read and you're gonna start applying to art school this coming year and in like four years you're gonna be pitching stuff Um, my class has a wide range which is really nice it's usually about half women Oh, I'm teaching at uh, PSU, uh, creating short comics. So I take, I, I'm teaching people to do comics in a single page. And I think that if you can learn how to draw comics in one page, then you can expand that out into a graphic novel or condense it down to a single panel. I think the principles are all there um, for expansion and contraction. But not only is it a lot, you know, half women, but it's there's also a wide age range where there are returning students that are 60 years old that are coming in. So it's it's a oddly more varied um, group of people than I'd ever seen before in my life. So in a way, yeah, it has infected mainstream. And I don't know how to get your kids to read them, though. Like with my kids, I, I just gave them comics that were around the house, and then they started reading. They, they would just grab things, and then and then they asked me about like how babies were made, and they told me some. St- and I was like, "Where did you learn that?" And they're like, "Oh, in your comic." And they were showing me something that I had written. I was like, "Oh, like, this is bad." Um, as, yeah. as, as we uh, have one one more audience question, go ahead. On the other end of the question for the, for the panel is, why aren't comics tragic anymore? <laughs> <laughs> when I was growing up, it was you know Frank Miller's Dark Batman, right. it was uh, Watchmen, uh, Chris Ware. Well, I'm doing a book on Trump. I don't know. <laughs> what more do you want? <laughs> it's coming back. Diana, I know you've got an answer for this. I, no, I, no I'm, I'm, I'm stumped, really. I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of some current tragic comics, and I'm coming up kind of short. I mean, there's The Walking Dead. I mean, the, the whole world Zombies. is, is Zombies. over. Zombies tragic? Well, I mean, the, the, the Walking Dead is about killing your neighbors, fundamentally. Um, but well, anyway, does anybody else have a... Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, there's things like Ross Chast, who mixes humor and, um, and tragedy. Her memoir, uh, why, uh, it, it, why Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant? Um, and there, I mean, certainly there are a ton of memoir comics. There's an entire range of, like, medical memoir stuff out there because you know everybody's everybody has their cancer experience and they're and they're drawing it for all to read so I mean there's certainly that uh, Art Spiegelman isn't the only one who's handled the Holocaust so there's a Fun home, yep. Tom Hart's memoir about losing his daughter that came out last year Rosalie Rosalie Lightning, Lightning. Oh, yeah. So, they're still out there. Well, I think, you know... A, that is the worst book ever. A big, <laughs> it's a beautiful book. A, a big piece of this, though, is that these things are no longer the remarkable exceptions that they were at the time that they came out. When Mouse came out, there was nothing else like it that addressed this experience in this medium. When The Dark Knight Returns came out, nobody else was using this kind of corporate mark to describe what was happening in society in an allegorical way. Once the dam burst, it gave permission for generations to follow. 
and produce this work. So I do think that the work is still being produced. Folks in the room had talked about Fun Home by Alison Bechdel. Roz Chast is another one who had come up. It's out there, but it's no longer the lone voice in the darkness. Um, you know, and, and I think that brings us to a good capstone question, responding to what Charlie had mentioned uh, at the beginning of our program, which is that humor often is the light in the darkness. And we're now, you know, at a, at a point where I think we're all feeling a certain amount of uncertainty, no matter where we are in politics or in our lives or, or whatever the case might be. And one of the things that great fiction does is it gives us the tools to imagine the future. And I think that one of the obligations that everybody working in the communications field has is to provide a little goal on the horizon for people to strive for, to reach for. And so I'd like to ask our panelists in closing what it is that you feel comics, whether it's your own work or whether it's comics as a whole, can offer us in this moment where we need to imagine better to get through this moment that we're in. Well, um, there's, a, there's a passage in the, uh, the Gospel of Thomas, which I think really uh, means a lot to me when I work, uh, and, and I think it really kind of expresses my philosophy of how I try to write, because I write a lot of stuff that's politically oriented or, or socially conscious, but uh, there's a passage that says, um, your heart can save you if you let it change the world, the world will destroy you if you don't let it change your heart. And I think that's really, for me, what comics, really any sort of writing does. It's a, it's a conversation between you and the world and what you both can do better. Well, thank you all for coming out to this first of hopefully many events uh, here. And thank you uh, to our hosts. Uh, we appreciate your kind attention. Thank you. Well, thanks everybody uh, for joining us this evening, uh, and uh, and thank our amazing panel for a really compelling conversation. I, I mentioned uh, beforehand that we had some comic books that folks are going to be able to take home with them, but but you all aren't going to be the only people to take things home with them. We have some lovely parting gifts for our for our panelists, and so. Uh, really? After feeding us? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, Holy Cross Hospitality, exactly. Um, so, uh, Dr. Eichler has, has volunteered to be Vanna. <laughs> I've moderated hundreds of panels. Nobody's ever given us a parting gift, so... <laughs> Thank you. And then, uh, uh, I think I'll I think I'll let uh, let right. So if any, uh, Diana just said, if you have questions that you didn't want to ask in front of the whole group and you would like to stay afterward and, and talk to our panelists, they'll be available for a few minutes to answer your questions. And now, uh, Vanna will <laughs> explain. She never gets to talk. <laughs> Oh, so 
one of Diana's Facebook friends said, wait, I make funny comics and sent a bunch, and they need to be an antidote to your panel tonight. So what we did was we put a big yellow post-it note on 20 chairs underneath. So I'm going to invite you to look underneath your chair. Uh, and if you have a yellow post-it note, you get, one, you get a funny comic. And if you're, you can look at chairs around you that nobody's sitting in. <laughs> and uh, just come on up and get a funny 